0: Okay, it looks like it's our time to begin. Although people are still arriving, thank goodness. <clears throat> uh, let's en- enjoy a few minutes of, of sitting and welcome. so that as you're, as you're sitting, you're also holding a space that is welcoming others to join you and also to join um, our time today. as we sit together in the, just these few few moments, just notice the most fundamental practice of awareness of your breath. There's no need to manipulate it, only to notice. And it's not actually about the breath at all or about some special practice. It's the simple awareness that you're alive. You could focus on any number of things, but the breath is so close and so beautiful and rhythmic in some ways echoing the great matter of birth and death of inhalation and exhalation, taking in the world and releasing it. Just simple breathing. It's the awareness and appreciation of the nature of life, of your life, our shared life, of the whole world, which shares your breath. The old instruction of returning to the breath as our mind inevitably strays isn't simply a, a training in concentration, although it helps in that regard. It's to come back to something simple and natural, to appreciate appreciate being alive and all that issues from that simple realization of this brief time on this planet when we're embodied and have this ability and willingness and opportunity to practice, being alive with other living things and non-living things. We're not practicing it to be separate or special. We practice being with everything and appreciating that as the ground of our being. Just breathing. In just a few moments, when I invite the bell, which signals the time for us to just shift our attention a little bit, in which we use our voices to recite the verse of the robe. And we say with our voice and our breath, wearing the universal teaching. It's not something that we put on, we put on the okesa or the rakasu during um, our day in a, a retreat or a temple, but wearing the teaching just simply reminds us that we are wearing the teaching because we're alive and can we realize it and the harmony that comes from that realization. The one true nature, <laughs> I want to talk about nature today. It's spring. And today, or these last few days, I've been sitting with um, you know these ageless <laughs> questions, which are always going to arrive at some point if we're paying attention. You know, those kind of big questions like, how, how does all this happen? You, you see things begin to change in spring, and, and that's a prompt, of course. But more than that, how does any of this this happen? And one of the questions that I grew up with a lot was, how do things become the way that they are? How do we become who we are? And then a new question arises like, is it possible to not be myself? What else could I possibly be? Yet often, I don't know about you, but. I don't feel like I'm very close to the best hope of myself. You know, there's that. And that gap, the disappointment that comes in that, the long it will, even if there's shame or confusion in there, that's still me, right? I I can't quite get, I'm always me. Hoping then falling short, sometimes succeeding, but always myself because this is, this is life. And I was given a complete life just like you were at least for a while. And isn't that a miracle? We have ideas about it, which we think, Oh, it's not a complete life, but that's just the idea. So in an attempt, I I hope you'll bear with me just for a moment. This is a small way seeking mind talk in in a way in this part. Um, because as I was reflecting on these kind of questions, but how did I I begin to try to answer them? Well, first was, um, I realized that nature is beautiful and terrifying. People are complicated and strange and wonderful. And there is a mystery that seems to be beyond beyond all of that. So let me back up. Number one, nature is beautiful and terrifying. wandering around the woods in South Texas as an introverted kid, I was home. Any of you do that? Not in South Texas, maybe, but, you know, I'd wander by myself after school. We, for a long time, we lived right across the street from a big piece of land that was, I think it was owned by the King ranch actually, but it wasn't fenced in and I could follow the trails and I kind of knew it really well. Many of you probably had these places. And in doing so, I was, I realized I was being taught something. I was being taught about interdependence of all the beings that were there, plants, animals, everything, and seasons about impermanence. You'd see the the animals that had died or the plants that hadn't survived. And it was the great matter of birth and death. I didn't know that, but I was compelled. I couldn't really turn away. So I studied uh, biology. That was my direction. I loved it. And I was really good at it. I I just love studying biology. But by the time I arrived and began working on my PhD in cell molecular biology at Johns Hopkins University, I found that I didn't like the life of a laboratory scientist. I'd gone from the field to the lab and I'd lost nature. One of my uh, cohorts in my entering class in the doctoral program at Hopkins was um, a really great, great guy. I really liked liked him. And he was from MIT. He, he'd gone to MIT as an undergraduate. And he said, at MIT, when we left, they would do an interview with us to say, ask us about the program. And so uh, a woman that I knew because she was really famous in the field had interviewed him as he left. And she said, is there anything that you missed in your biology training at massachusetts institute of technology and he said um plants and animals (laughs) you know it was all chemistry and math and physics and things like that so anyway that was the first step nature is beautiful and terrifying i studied biology i loved it and but then it was something else that called me number two people are complicated and strange and wonderful is that or is that just me is that seem like that to you? I, everybody struggles. And they do the best they can, but everybody seems to need help. And I needed help. And I finally gave in to the realization that we need each other. I even had to admit I needed others, as self-reliant as I tried to be. So I studied psychology. Biology to psychology, and blended it with my life science background and entered the field of behavioral medicine Um, how the mind and body work together with health and illness. And so, life and death remain my teachers. And my patients, especially the years in cancer care, uh, asked new questions of me that came out of their embodied experience expressed through their psychological makeup, you know, their own particular way. But they were reaching like deeper, further, for something that was uh, not just the the, the medical, the biological, not just the psychological, how they were coping, but they were were longing for something else that I couldn't respond to very well, even though I was helpful on the psychological level. They were asking about the mystery, the third step, There, there is a mystery that's beyond the words and the ordinary human understanding stuff we can figure out But it's embodied all the time and we are living it. You're living it It's the very ground of our being even as we just breathe and sit together, which I was suggesting we do So I sought training and study in uh, some form of spirituality. I needed a direction and It's made sense to do this and Buddhism I discovered as a path that was grounded in the relief of suffering that was in the suffering business so that helped and um that was the the people part and it was all being expressed as nature human nature embodied in everyday life that was the biology part so it was all there and so these were the curiosities and trainings of nature and biology of the complexities of human life in psychology and then spirituality in this mystery kind of defines my stepping stones, my, my career. <clears throat> and so that's kind of the, the, the background, but it, it's the background that helps understand why I've chosen to reflect on a couple of things today that I hope will encourage you to reflect on your practice more deeply and we can speak about it. You know, last week I, I spoke in response to um, a wonderful interview I'd heard from Jane who who is a a poet. And her elegant and kind of gritty descriptions of what committed practice does to a person and for a person and, and for everybody else was so deep and touching that I wanted to share it and use it as a reflection. And this week I'm going to speak from another contemporary interview from another contemporary woman scientist, uh, Jeanine um, Binyos, um, because of her capacity to show how nature is teaching us how to practice, how to find our place in the world in which we live and what she calls learning from nature, not about it. Very similar to what was so important to me in, in my biology. And, and um, Margaret, thank you, Margaret Keyes brought this to me this interview um, it's an interview that was on the platform that many of you know on being with krista tippett uh, and uh, janine Benyus is the author of a book uh, which been out a long long time she's had many other books but the original book was and she coined the term biomimicry an operating manual for earthlings and in the beginning um i'm going to quote a couple of things because then this small introduction, you, I found almost all of practice in that array of things that captured me and got me to Zen practice. And this is Krista Tibbet, she says, there's a quiet, redemptive story of our time in this conversation, a radical way of approaching the gravest of our problems by attending to how original vitality functions attending to how original vitality functions, like sitting and breathing together. She says biomimicry takes the natural world as mentor and teacher, just like it was for me. And she goes on for, as Janine Binyas puts it, we are surrounded by geniuses. Isn't that a great? When we go into nature, we're surrounded by geniuses. She said, nature solves problems and performs what appear to us as miracles in every second all around. Running on sunlight, fitting form to function, she goes on. And then creating conditions conducive to life. That's our practice. And this touched all of these places in me. And that's why I spent some time describing them to you. And all the key questions that, but it brought to mind, the, to me anyway, these images of the Taoist masters in the mountains of ancient China immersed in nature, the Chan masters and the old forest monasteries living with, you know, like the, the hermit Han Shan was such a revered poet in the sixth and early seventh century in China. Listen to, listen to this tiny poem. Scanning. He's on, a mountain, Hanshan, mountain. Scanning the green slopes below, I discuss the profound principle with the white cloud. Though the feeling of the wild is in mountains and waters, truly I long for a companion of the way. Immersed in nature, you know, he's saying, "This is this is where my conversation is, but I wish I had somebody with me. And later he says, lost now on the path, (laughs) we all find ourselves there, right? Lost now on the path, shadow, tell me, which way should I go? He only has a shadow for a companion, but we have each other. So when uh, Janine says the writerly definition, she's an interesting woman, she has her uh, degree is in forestry and English literature. A great combination. <laughs> so here she says, <clears throat> this is the writerly definition of biomimicry, the conscious emulation of life's genius. When we say follow the schedule, enact the forms, don't make up standards on your own, follow the teachings, we're saying, enter the conscious emulation of life's genius. And as she began to open this field of biomimicry, who came to her weren't scientists so much sometimes, but designers. What in the natural world, she says, has already solved this problem. They would start looking at what in the world has already solved this problem. And they'd try to emulate that organism or that ecosystem and hopefully come up with something that helps us live more, more gracefully. But what about our spiritual teachers and their practices? Aren't we Once again, aren't we enacting the conscious emulation of life's genius? Well, here's an example. There's some fundamental observations about biomimicry that she lists. There there are nine or 10 of them. Actually, I think now in the new book, there's 26, but that's for another day. These are the basic ones. And so I'm gonna read those, they're very short. So you have the list just in your mind generally. You don't have to to know them. And then I'm going to translate them like I often do. Because all of them are about nature. For example, the first one. Nature runs on sunlight. And I'm going to translate all of them to Buddha nature. Or uh, let's use awakening. Okay. So here's her list. Nature runs on sunlight. Nature uses only the energy it needs. Nature fits form to function. Nature recycles everything. Nature rewards cooperation. Nature banks on diversity. Nature demands local expertise. Nature curbs excesses from within. And nature taps the power of limits. And then the overall one that really stunned me is life creates conditions conducive to life. So we'll start at this top. Nature runs on sunlight. Awakening runs on nature. Nature uses only the energy it needs. An awakened heart mind uses only what is needed. Nature fits form to function. Awakening is the function of form and the form of function. The Heart Sutra form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Nature recycles everything. Awakening uses and is used by everything. Nature rewards cooperation. Awakening is embodied cooperation. Nature banks on diversity. Awakening is the aliveness of all forms. Nature demands local expertise. Awakening responds appropriately to circumstance. Awakening is an appropriate response. Nature curbs excesses from within. Awakening is things as they are, the middle way. And nature taps the power of limits. Awakening is the fullness of everything. And that last overarching one, life creates conditions conducive to life. Wakefulness creates conditions conducive to wakefulness. Here's Hanshan again, just so we get a little poet in there. No matter how high you climb cold mountain road, the way to cold mountain never ends. The long valley is stacked with boulders, its shoreline wet with lush grass, slippery moss, regardless of rain, pine trees singing, even without wind. Who can go beyond the entangled world, and sit with me in the midst of white clouds. So there's a lot in that we could go into, but really I just wanted to give you the feel. The practice never ends. Everything is just as it is. Going beyond, and yet, and yet. The phrase that Janine coined was she said in our, our work as a consultancy with designers and with scientists, she said, we have muddy knees and epiphanies, which I really liked. It reminds me of, uh, well, in the Zendo, it's like painful knees and epiphanies, but it's like uh, we're down in the mud of the lotus, you know, we got mud and epiphanies. And here's here's an example. I, I, I like to give you stories and examples to make it alive as you reflect on your own practice. She's talking about in this a small quotation, taking a, a group of engineers to the Galapagos. It's, she says, one time we took some wastewater engineers. So that was their f- group of wastewater engineers out to the Galapagos Islands. And they were pretty resistant. They were on a boat for seven days together. And they were like, why are we here? This is a boondoggle. And I said, well, what do you guys do? And they said, Well, we filter stuff out of water. And I said, Well, let's go snorkeling. Because everything in this ocean is filtering salt out of the water because it lives on fresh water and it lives in salt water. Everything is a membrane. And that got their attention. So, what gets your attention? When you look around in life, say, what am I doing here? When you're surrounded by geniuses, this is the Dharma gate. Are you gonna step through it? Because otherwise it's caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding the self-centered thoughts. And you hear the engineers doing that. She, she tells another piece of it in a, a turn. She said, when we, when we go to the islands and they go off the boat, she said these engineers would get out, they'd take some pictures, and they'd jump back on the boat. Sightseeing. It's like sightseeing practice, you know. Come to the about. But after they started to really look at these organisms as their mentors, and their engineering peers or mentors, they were just on their knees just on their knees having epiphanies. And that's where she, she got that, that phrase. Getting, we, we say in Zen, uh, turn toward each thing, be intimate, become close, keep turning toward, keep turning toward everything. Nothing is what you think it is. Do you get habituated in the Zendo? You get used to it or it's routine or inquiry. You come here, you, uh, you know, listen me, I say thing. To your friends, your teachers, you're just snapping pictures and getting back in the boat. But each moment, life as it is, the only mentor. Here's an example she uses. She says, I walked by this guy named Paul and he was looking at a mangrove. And he was a pretty buttoned up guy, an engineer, and he was crying. He had tears streaming down his face. And I stood next to him and looked at the mangrove and I, I could, I could get it. It's a pretty spectacular thing. And he turned to me and he said, how is it that in my education, I've been doing this work for a 30 years, no 40 years. I'm a desalination expert. I filter salt from water and this plant has its roots in salt water and it's solar powered and it's desalinating. He said, I'm crying because it's beautiful and because no one ever told me. Wakefulness is always around us, right in front of our faces. It's not something out there that you can get or even something you can lose. It's life as it is minus all our ideas about it. And when we accord with each moment in this way, we experience something simple and profound, which is awe. We chant being just this moment, compassion's way. And I know that feeling, and probably many of you do too. I experience it here. He was looking at mangrove. I look at a screen full of people's faces, people that I care about and who are kind to me. In an intensive, in a practice discussion group, um, you work on the grounds of the Zendo, you develop a Dharma talk or a class or something. When I sit in the Zendo and like when we're in a retreat, like Peg and I, for example, are facing out, looking at everyone, sitting as best they can. I sometimes weep like the engineer looking at the mangrove because I feel such awe and appreciation for the effort and for the tenderness. How can just sitting be such a gorgeous and courageous celebration of what's whole and real and beautiful and tragic? And it all unfolds through qualities that I've been reflecting on in these recent talks These are my sort of muddy knees and epiphanies. Remember last time of gratitude and generosity and humility, these qualities. this presence itself without being overtaken by desire or hatred too much, nothing extra. Grounded in curiosity, patience. Just one last little bit. When Janine was speaking about uh, reflecting on Native peoples, she said, people who lived really embodied in their places did biomimicry, mimically naturally. Like in one part of the world, they would watch snowshoe hares, and they'd say, did you ever look at snowshoes? It kind of looks like the footprint of the snowshoe hare. Or maybe we're going to make a chisel because we need to work. And so you look at the beaver's teeth. This is not new. She calls it remembering. You know, samsara is dismembering. Awakening is remembering, restoring an awareness of what has never left us. So we come together like this to remember. Uh, and in the interview, speaking of how to, how to uh, communicate, how to cooperate, how to heal, she mentioned those three things, how to communicate, how to cooperate, how to heal. She said, anything we're actually trying to do, somebody on this planet has already tried to do it. What's worth doing? How should we live? What would nature do here? And I thought when she asked those questions, it's like, that's that's our in practice. What's worth doing? How should we live? That's the precepts. What would nature do here? What what does awakening look like? So we look at our ancestors and their teachings, our teachers today, our spiritual friends, you guys, who share an aspiration for an awakened life. What are we being shown? How to communicate, how to cooperate, how to heal, the same three things. The precepts, how to communicate, how to cooperate, how to heal. Anything we're actually trying to do in practice, someone on this planet has already tried to do it. These are the teachings, the Dharma. What's worth doing? How should we live here? What would nature or awakening do here? That's what Han Shan is writing about. The shift from learning from nature instead of about it. You know, when Bodhidharma first said, Zen is a special transmission outside the scriptures, not depending on words and letters, directly pointing to the mind, directly pointing to nature, directly pointing to seeing into one's true nature. Nature as mentor, genius is all around us. A last reflection, she said, in the dedication to her book, she wrote, uh, For the Mentors on the Tangled Bank. And um, Krista Tibbet asked her if that meant on the tangled bank of her place that she and her partner have in, in Montana, I think it is. And she said, no, that's from Darwin. That line is from the origin of the species. And she said, who never said survival of the fittest, by the way. He never said survival of the fittest. He said fit. Survival of the fit which means fit to place, fit to your community. And these are not my words, hers, because he understood studying evolution and all coming up with natural selection. He understood that organisms don't just move into a place. They co-create a place and the place creates them. Then they create the place. Zarsanga. And so that's the idea. Of it, it's a homecoming, like coming back to fittedness so that the habitat changes and is changing all the time. And so you have to go along, uh, conditions have changed. I'm no longer fit to this place, but I'm going to evolve my behaviors and physiologically I'm going to evolve to more and more at home here. So this is the challenge of awakening and of our Sangha. We know that conditions are always changing, that's impermanence they're always being co-created, it's a mutual causality. To fit is to be intimate with the moment and the circumstances, no matter what they are. Not waiting for a better fit or feeling unhappy with the current fit or clinging to a preferred fit. And we're seeing this with climate change. Literally, some species of plants are literally walking up the mountain because as it gets warmer, And they have a certain temperance that they move. They seed in a different place. It was only Herbert Spencer, by the way, um, the sociologist philosopher who changed to survival of the fittest because he was talking about social Darwinism. And then in the fifth edition of Origin of the Species, Darwin changed it. Awakening is to know, to remember that we live on a competent planet And we're part of it, but we're young. Krista Tippett said, yeah, we're young. This experimental youth as a species (laughs) that we are. uh, How do humans learn? How do young humans learn? They take things apart and they put them back together again, right? However, they usually don't burn the house down. And Janine said, yeah, I call us toddlers with matches because we live by burning stuff it's not something you want to see and curiously buddha began by the fire sermon talking about the four noble truths using fire as the metaphor so what do you do when you don't know where you're going how do you summon your imagination and this is the function of our practice and our teachings the function of taking refuge and vow but all this requires a mentor, my last point in my long talk here. And it brings us back to Hawaii. Uh, And curiously, Janine quoted this. Uh, She was talking about Nainoa Thompson, who was the navigator on uh, Hokulea, the the ocean voyaging vessel. She said, as a young man, a native Hawaiian, he was mentored by one of the last wayfinders. These are the people who used to go into these canoe-like boats and then head out into the ocean for thousands of miles and out of a whole ocean they were able to find land they were able to find tahiti they were able to go to hawaii and they had all kinds of amazing um, ways of doing that before sextants before any kind of gps or anything but how did they do this so his mentor uh, an older man named Mao, was teaching him i know him and he was about to go off on the journey to tahiti once he would learned all he could learn this modern day journey, and Mao took him out to the shoreline. And they were standing there looking out into the ocean. And Mao said to him, Can you see the islands? Can you see Tahiti? And Nainoa I said, No, no, I can't see it. And Mao said, In my mind's eye, I can. And he said, that's how you'll find it. Keep it in your mind's eye. That's how you'll find awakening. That's how you'll find what you long for. And our practices and our teachings and life around us is reminding us to keep it in our mind's eye. So I know we've used an awful lot of time today um, since I'm tragically over-prepared usually but this was too much of a piece. I thought it was really powerful and important, and and I appreciate Margaret bringing it to my attention so I could reflect on it today. Well, what are your reflections? I want to hear what this calls up for you, if anything, <clears throat> and questions you might have as a result for your own your own practice. Hi, Rosemary.
1: Hi there. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret, and thank you, Flint for this it's um this morning um I was ready to walk with friends and they said it's, it's really terrible now we're not going but I didn't get the message so I arrived and um at these at the foot of the uh, well not the foot the up the cliffs of the Palisades here on the Hudson River mm-hmm. and uh, there was nobody there I mean there was one lone bird watcher and me it seemed so I walked and um It was just a beautiful walk in the woods. And because there are no leaves in the trees, you can see the river uh, much better and across. So where it is, you you can actually walk right up to the edge. They have like a bar there so you won't fall. But, and it was so quiet. I could hear the river um, flowing onto the shore a bit.
2: Mm.
1: And we were talking about music yesterday and, and it was so, quiet and it was the power of the river that I was feeling and it was just um very nourishing I'm not sure how it would mentor me um in, that in-
0: was the, that was the Dharma talk that the river was offering you mm-hmm. but it wasn't trying to give you information it was saying be close yeah. you remember you yeah. could look through the trees and see Manhattan, right?
3: Uh,
1: well, it's a little north. So I'm looking probably at someplace in Westchester. Yeah. Um, so, um, that would
0: be, that would be so ordinary. Exactly. Ordinary moment. That's why we stop and we sit and we're quiet so it can come to us. That was the, the teaching.
1: Thank you, and this this is like i'm probably 70 feet up like straight up these cliffs and. um, The the river is pretty much there, but there there's a field of of trees, like going up about halfway up the cliff so you're looking at this brown. all these um, branches so there's that and you can kind of look to the side and see that and then the river, all the way down and then on on my way back to the path there was a huge tree that that had fallen it was so graceful um and um what i noticed is that it wasn't the whole tree it was like three-fourths of the tree fell and is dead and then the part where it broke off when i looked in there were all these interesting um uh textures and colors and i i want to come back kind of with a camera or something um so, and uh, I could have sort of called it magnificence reposing this long, anyway, it was such a nourishing experience. So um, I guess those were well, my- i
0: sure to teach you without having to worry about its meaning, just let it come to you. We're changed by that. Thank you. Thank sure.
1: you. Thank you so much.
3: Suzanne is here. Mrs. Hello, Flint. Um, I so needed this today, even though I didn't want to come because I didn't want to face or, or be stimulated by how heartbroken and angry I am at another school shooting. And um, the very last thing you said, keep in your mind's eye what what is needed and wanted
0: part of our job that's why we it
3: is it is but at the same time i'm this is a how I, i said to my husband this morning after our meditation and going through all the chants and our prayers and and while i as i listened to myself i went this is useless this is just useless what what is this all for And I said to him, I don't know how to hold our good life and the reality of this all. And how many people's lives have been ruined by this violence, senselessness. But this last saying, keep it in your mind's eye.
0: Can you see Tahiti from where you stand? Can you see what you want? Yeah. One part of you says, no, this doesn't help at all. Another part says, yeah, and that's... That's the courage that's required.
3: Mm-hmm. I I feel so weak in terms of courage, Flint. Yeah. Like where where does it come from? And yet I remember something you said a couple of um, weeks ago. You gave us a quote from, and I would appreciate the teacher again who said, "You know, why do you sit, Zazen? And it's absolutely useless. Mm-hmm. But if you don't, your life will be useless." And mm-hmm. I. I said that to myself so many times.
0: Yeah. Koto Sawaki Roshi, yeah.
3: Sawaki Roshi, okay. Uh, I just needed to say this out loud today. I'm,
0: absolutely, absolutely. I'm, I'm just, glad you voiced it. Yeah, I was just speaking with one of our um, really long, long, long time students, Annie Villalobos, who teaches in a, a large, successful Montessori school in Dallas. And mm-hmm. she's now not in the classroom any longer, and she helps with the new uh, families coming in and processing all this, you know. The single most common thing families ask now is about safety, not curriculum, not anything else. Safety. Safety. Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm. And yet that school thought it was completely safe. They had their doors all locked. Yep. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Keep it in your mind and your heart and we'll help you. Keep it in my mind. Keep it in my
3: mind's eye. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Flint. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you. Mm
3: -hmm. So oh, I see that Efrat has her hand raised. There you are. I
0: yeah. have my voice. I right, see so you have your voice, yeah.
4: Well, I just wanted to tell you, Flint, I listened to that um, interview and I can see how I need to hear it again. And I need to be filtered through your engagement and enthusiasm and the way you listen to really know what I got. Hmm. It's really interesting because I remembered every detail that you brought up, every one of them. And if you would have asked me, I, I would have said, I'm absent-minded. These days, I forget more than I retain. So my my, my sense of self is not very... Um, upheld in that sense. However, I discovered that I actually had taken in and contained these details and they did their first round of fermenting and digesting but they needed to come back and with a more relevant relationship, right? It's not nature out there, it's nature in here and also what already has taken root. It just was so illuminated. So I thought of this process and what is it that we do together? And what is it that teachers give us? Which includes every one of us. And it really brought that home to me and the value of the time spent and the the listening and re-listening and re-listening that we do. Because at the end of the day, it's all the same actions and yet something comes to fruition in a mysterious way, which is nature. So thank you for this completion of another round. Um, Much appreciated.
0: Of course, and I'll just say as a final thing, when I spoke about what it was like as a boy to walk in nature like I did and how it saved me, um, you're you're one of the people who helped me remember that because you walk like that.
4: Every day, yes. Yes. (laughs) Thank you.
5: Hello, Flint. Hello, everyone. Hey, uh, thank you for this talk. Uh, you, Your talk, Flint, took me back, not too far back, to a trip I just had to California to visit my 93-year-old aunt. She's my father's sister. They're the only two remaining. He's 94. She's 93. And I, I, I can't touch on every part of your talk that reflected that visit. In that visit, I watched her fit to life. How she has fit to life. She's recently lost her last sister. The you know, uh, five girls. Um, she lost her husband less than a year ago, and she fit to that. And now she has recently, which is why I went out to California to make sure she's fitting into her current life, moved from a home she's lived in 60 years. She was married over 70 years um, to an assisted living. And she's done it with such grace and acceptance. It's just beautiful. And I do have to share this part of the visit. So as we were talking she said well what's your practice now me because she's catholic i said well i'm zen Buddhist." she said i love buddhists she said do you know how i know about buddhists i said no her her daughter my cousin is a doctor and she worked as the office manager for decades in her daughter's office she said a chiropractor um trained in china came into Sandra's office one day and left a little pamphlet on Buddhism. And I read it, she said, and it just captured me. And she asked, "Will you send me some good Buddhist books. (laughs) So my mind immediately went to the library in the Zendo, like, what do I send her? So I'm going to sit with that a bit because I don't want to overwhelm her. But she's got it. And so... So many different part of your talks about um, fitting with what you are, the abundance, uh, the gift that everything's calling us to see in life. And um, I'll just point out one more thing. We may have time to talk about this when you come to Austin. My practice edge and the reason I have to come to so I want to, but I have to. Come to so many um, of our activities. Is I can't hold on to it, Flint. I'm so full and connected, and in touch with our practice at the moment, and I can't hold on to it. If I'm not in activity every single day,
0: I can't either. It's, <laughs> uh, it's a little bit like Fra was talking about. It, just let it move through you. It does. It works on you. You don't have to hold it.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: And by the way, uh, one of our Dharma sisters, Sue Moon, who's nearly 80, she's written a wonderful book recently on Buddhism called This is Getting Old. And it's about aging and Buddhism.
5: Oh, I will write that down. Thank you so okay. much. Thank you. Oh. And Penelope, we have a
3: quick time for you too.
6: Hello. Um,
0: hello. <laughs> here. I love your skeleton there, which I know is always there, but today it's important, I'm isn't to
6: it? i <laughs> um, Anyway, thank you so much, Flint, for um, bringing up your nature walks in South Texas, because, you know, uh, here I am in South Texas as well, in South Central Texas. And um, I just wanted to say that there's so many beautiful mentors that you mentioned today. And I wanted to add one that has always helped me so much, um, or, you know, Richard Feynman. And I don't know if, um, any of you know, this book, the pleasure of finding things out. Um, but he also is uh, what you know was such an amazing mentor because like you, he was a scientist and, um, you know, actually was one of the ones who worked on the atomic bomb. So, uh, you know, he had a very, you know, did a lot of different things, but he also reveled in seeing nature. And, you know, for a scientist at this time, his work was very mandatory. So I just wanted to share that. And thank you for your beautiful talk today.
0: Of course. Thank you.
5: Do we have time for Ben?
0: Of course. Even if we just have a short time, it's a... I think you're unmuted, aren't you? Well, I don't hear you. No, you're still muted somehow. Can you help Jessica or what help? does he need to do it? There you go. <laughs> Hi, Flint. Hi, you're looking well. Um, thank you. Um...
2: I um I uh, thank you for today. Um, I thought it was uh, really um, inspiring. You seemed uh, a little more animated than normal. I could see that you were really, really passionate about what you were talking about. But my question is, <clears throat> sorry, I've got a bit of a sore throat. Um, so at the moment, I'm feeling very lost with things does that equate to being caught in a self-centered dream? So if, if one is lost, by definition, does that mean one is caught up in their own kind of mind and their own feelings and thoughts?
0: Well, that's one way of getting lost. We can get lost because we've, we can't see clearly because our vision and our senses are clouded because we're so lost inside. Yes. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the reason we're lost. That may be part of it. It could also be that conditions have changed, or in a very much deeper level, the rug has been pulled out from who we thought we were and how we thought we would navigate the world. Remember that little piece by Han? Yes. I, I feel myself lost along the way. Shadow, tell me where should I go? Like sometimes we just, yes. have to ask, that's an opportunity. Uh, but it's, it's difficult because we requ- um, there's so much vulnerability in it, and that's why we need each other. So yeah. even if even if I don't know what's next for me, I might say, Ben, would you just hang out with me or can we take a walk together? Or can we not because you're supposed to solve yeah. it, but I need someone with me yeah. while I sit in the not knowing because it's it's frightening, it's it's hard. Yeah. So we, <clears throat> sometimes that we do get in our own way and we get caught in the self centered dream. But sometimes it's actually each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, but the teacher is teaching you in a way that you can't understand yet. Mm. You're listening. So you've got to keep paying attention and and be accompanied.
2: Yes. I just thought it was interesting. It it kind of resonated the fact that nature, it would appear, never feels lost. It always continues to to flex and, and, and adapt and yeah so that re i've not quite got my head around that but there's something that resonated with really? being lost and that element of nature i'm aware of time so um yeah. I, know, I, know I,
0: love, uh, I love the the image behind you because it's abstractness it doesn't give you a direction but it gives you beauty and that's kind of how it is you know mm. and thank you for coming forward thank you yeah Uh, We will uh, uh, say our Four Noble uh, Truths and the Four Practice Principles now, that Ben has queued up for us, (laughs) caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream, each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught Just this moment, compassion's way.
3: Avamata's programs and
5: facilities are supported through your generosity, and your support makes a huge difference. I'm going to put a link uh, for contributions in the chat. There's also a link on the website at Apamada.org slash contribute. Um, or you can uh, contribute directly to Flint on the form that I've posted in the chat. Um, you can always make your make sure that your um, contributions go to whatever program or teacher that you'd like uh, by just putting a little note there as well. So well, thank you everyone. It's wonderful to see all of you and um, Hang out if you can with Maria
3: for a bit of porch time. Thank you.